This is the Missio Nexus Podcast, episode 49, September 2019. Welcome to the September podcast. I'm a little late getting it out this month. In fact, today is September 3rd. I'm sitting here in my office and Hurricane Dorian is over there beating up Freeport in the Bahamas. And it's kind of surreal for us because traffic has essentially stopped on the highway in front of our house, which is usually a problem for me when I record the podcast. I don't want that traffic noise. And uh, today we have none. It's actually a beautiful day here. We anticipate uh, getting the outer bands and some nasty weather here in the next 24 hours, but thus far, so good at the Missio Nexus headquarters, at least the Ted Esther part of it. Well, today we do have a kind of a unique interview, and we're going to have a discussion about that interview after I roll it. It's going to be with USAID, who are trying to do some outreach uh, to us in the faith community. And so you're going to hear all about that. Today's sponsor is to assistant. And this is a service that I use. What they can do is they can provide you with an overseas assistant. Now, people are living in different labor markets around the world. And because of that, we can take advantage of that while also giving an opportunity to somebody who otherwise might not have a job. And I know that uh, this role has made a difference in the life of the person that's working with us, and we have an absolutely awesome assistant that works with us at Missio Nexus. Now, if you want to get more information on this, I'm going to connect you directly to the man, Nigel. He's the CEO, and you can reach him either through texting or using WhatsApp uh, on his number. Now, you know, for me, I wouldn't do this, but he likes to use his phone number, so you're going to get direct access here. That number is 416-877-8261. It will be posted in the show notes as well if you'd like to find out more about Twisistant. Now, to kind of set this up, I've had um, a, a meeting with USAID as they've gone through lots of changes as um, the administration turned over into the Trump administration. They've been working hard and they've actually recently released the new guidelines for how they work with faith-based groups like ours. And I would encourage you to at least think about it. And this may not be something for you in your organization, but it might be something that could have a big impact on a different organization. So we're going to roll the interview and then we're going to roundhouse. And this is going to actually be our question that we'll talk about from the mailbag today. Should you be working as a missionary with government agencies? Well, this is going to be a bit of a unique interview uh, for the Missio Nexus podcast. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, on the call today, we're going to be talking with uh, Diana Lightfoot, a senior advisor, Global Health Bureau, and Randy Tiff, senior advisor in the Office of Acquisition and Assistance. Uh, they're both from USAID. And they are both, um, we, we got in touch because there is a faith-based faith, uh, faith, faith initiative um, coming out of uh, the office of the USAID that I think is a little different and unique than what it's been in the past. And so we had a chance to meet face-to-face. -face, and I said, you know, I'd like to get this out to our network so people are aware of it. So um, uh, Diana and Randy, thank you so much for being on the call today. Oh, thank you. We are uh, very excited about this opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much, Ted. It's a pleasure to be with you and your membership on this call. 
Well, let's just start out. Tell us a little bit about USAID and what the goals and objectives for USAID are. Well, the U.S. Agency for International Development uh, is the federal government agency with the primary responsibility for delivering foreign assistance and promoting effective relief and development around the world. U.S. foreign assistance has always had a twofold purpose of furthering America's interests while also improving lives in the developing world. Uh, USAID carries out U.S. foreign policy by promoting broad-scale human progress at the same time that it expands stable free societies, creates markets and trade partners for the United States, and fosters goodwill abroad. That's kind of a summary of the mission statement of USAID. Now, the way we do this is through a combination of interconnected uh, programs or sectors, as we sometimes call them. So, working in over 100 countries, we promote global health, which is, of course, something Diana can talk in, uh, talk in depth about. Uh, we promote global stability through programs that, for example, address uh, the prevention of conflict and uh, fragility of government institutions in host countries or partner countries. We, of course, provide humanitarian assistance, which might be the part that most Americans and uh, uh, folks involved in overseas mission in particular would be most familiar with. Uh, but there are other kinds of programs that may not be as familiar to people. We're catalyzing different innovation, uh, innovative approaches to partnership. For example, empowering women and girls is becoming a major uh, uh, an increased priority for um, current USAID leadership and has always been something that through livelihoods programming or education, uh, we have uh, promoted uh, gender-based uh, uh, programming and opportunities for women and girls. So we provide development assistance to help partner countries uh, on their own development journey to self-reliance. And that's something Administrator Mark Green has introduced as a new approach to sustainable outcomes in development. This journey to self-reliance is something we're all asked to uh, focus on, enabling our partner countries in the delivery of foreign assistance to those partner countries to stand on their own and really own the development objectives. And, uh, and our role is to look at ways that we can empower those host country partners and build communities alongside them. Thank you, Randy, for that great introduction. And I, as I said, I am with the uh, Bureau for Global Health, and USAID's objective is to improve global health, uh, focusing on three strategic priorities. One is preventing child and maternal death. Uh, the second is controlling the HIV-AIDS epidemic, and also combating infectious diseases. The Bureau for Global Health achieves the agency's health objective by organizing our headquarters work around a number of different offices. I'll just go over the ones that are most relevant to this conversation. Uh, one is the Office of Health Systems, and that focuses on health policy, quality assurance, workforce policy, uh, pharmaceutical management, and standards, and also and evaluation of all of our programs. The second is the Office of HIV AIDS, and it provides HIV AIDS technical leadership for the agency. Uh, we, it has the primary responsibility for leading the PAPFAR efforts, and I'm sure most of you listening are 
familiar with the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief that was instituted in 2003 and is still running. Uh, the Office of Infectious Disease is another, and that leads our work in the areas of tuberculosis, neglected tropical diseases, emerging threats that can be mentioned, and pandemic preparedness and response. The office also supports the agency's work on malaria through the enormously successful President's Malaria, malaria Initiative. Then we have the Office of Maternal and Child Health and Nutrition, and that serves as the agency's technical policy lead on maternal and child health and also nutrition. Uh, they play a leading role in preventing child and maternal death around the world. And finally, for the purposes of our conversation today, the Office of Population and Reproductive Health. They provide strategic direction and technical leadership in population, voluntary family planning, and also in reproductive health. In addition, it's important to note uh, that our work at headquarters is done in close coordination and in support, in, in close coordination with and in support of our field-based missions. And we have missions in 80 countries. I'm just curious, you piqued a little um, curiosity in me when you talked about the malaria initiative. Could you just very briefly tell us uh, what's happened there that's made it so uh, successful? Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that because one of my heroes, uh, Admiral Tim Zemer, has uh, led, our, led that initiative up until the last year or so through several different uh, administrations. And he has a very, he's led a very strategic effort to work, as Randy and I both talked about, with um, groups in country through their own resources and their own, uh, the people who know the communities best, and through a multi-tiered approach at anti-malarials, at uh, distributing bed nets, and doing community follow-up and community, uh, community support efforts. So this, that's a very brief look at the strategic approach, but it's, uh, I believe, Randy, is it in 26, 28 countries? Sounds right. And um, I, I know I'm about to talk to you about a project in a few minutes where there was about a double increase in uh, bed net use over a period of a couple of years hmm. through this initiative. So again, it's back to the community-based approach, the community behind, the, the partnership, rather than superimposing an effort, uh, we recognize the great value of partnership and of supporting self-reliance and sustainability, because otherwise we would be, we would be sort of a veneer approach. And Randy, you want to add to that? I think the President's Malaria Initiative has really proven to be a model for other kinds of uh, comprehensive global initiatives, and uh, it's stood the test of time. Now, malaria uh, has been addressed effectively in a number of ways, but it hasn't gone away, and so the PMI continues. Yeah. And a lot of uh, non-governmental organization partners in addressing uh, malaria have been faith-based partners that have done some of the most effective work because they often have that uh, ability to mobilize communities uh, based on the faith affinity many of those communities have. 
and the trust. That is key, as Randy's saying. The affinity is, is kin to trust or is related to trust. Well, I know that the mosquito is the number one killer of humans yeah. by, you know, a long shot. So um, anyway, let's go on to the next question if we could. I want you to talk a little bit, if you could, about some of the ways. I know you've reworked how you implement projects. Can you just talk to us, describe what's happening in this area? Sure, I'll be glad to start. So over the past two years, USAID has undergone what we have called transformation. It is an effort to do a top-to-bottom review of agency structures, uh, priorities, and policies, and to try and move in the direction of enabling countries to lead in their own development, to really achieve self-reliance in um, sustainable development. And so part of this is uh, things like uh, mobilizing private sector partnerships uh, more, more at a greater scale and more effectively than in the past. Uh, part of this is restructuring the agency simply for its own efficiencies and uh, greater ability to support field-based missions where development really happens. But part of this is really sort of the, what I like to call the mad scientist laboratory, <laughs> where we've been looking at the way USAID buys uh, products and services to enable development. We work through implementing partners. USAID staff themselves are, are typically not the ones uh, out in the communities uh, doing uh, social behavior change or um, helping uh, food producers to be more efficient and to reach different markets. It's the implementing partners, and these are sometimes for-profit businesses. They're sometimes non-governmental organizations. Many of these are large global organizations like the one I used to work for, World Vision, but some of them are small organizations. Some of them are local. Many of them increasingly are based in the communities that uh, that are being served. But there is still a need for partnerships with uh, groups that are based in the U.S. or internationally but operate locally. And so what we've done in part of this transformation is we've looked at effective partnering and procurement. How do we buy the professional services we need to get the job done? And we've discovered that USAID's own systems have atrophied over time we are down to a very small number of partners that uh, receive the largest amounts of overall USAID funding. Annual funding obligations through what we call acquisition or assistance, that is contracts or grants, um, is around $17 billion a year. So that kind of funding flows to the field through grants or contracts. And what we found is that more than 80% of that total funding goes to just 75 partners. Some of these are UN agencies, some are large NGOs that, that do very good work, and some are these contractors who uh, also have uh, effective um, presence in these countries to implement for USAID. But in, but in uh, this drift or shift toward these fewer partners, we've lost the, uh, a great part of our ability to innovate, to see some of the key um, parts of unlocking effective development like social behavior change. Groups that uh, specialize in that kind of work um, are not able to access USAID funding as easily as they once did maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So to make a long story short, we have tried to do an overhaul of our partnering approaches and procurement systems such that we lower the barriers to entry, 
we require not a full technical and cost proposal at the beginning of the process, but just a five-page concept paper so that any organization that might have a development solution worth uh, USAID's uh, investment can enter into a dialogue with us. It doesn't require having all these back office functions and systems that you can produce a full cost proposal right up front. And we're also uh, setting up specific solicitations, invitations to provide applications um, that are simplified and involve co-creation with USAID, not requiring the partner or the proposer uh, of a program to come up with all the answers, but co-creating them together. So these are some of the approaches, and one of the ways that we're operationalizing these new approaches is through something called the New Partnerships Initiative. Uh, I can give you in a few minutes uh, some uh, uh, tips about how to look into the New Partnerships Initiative to access uh, those opportunities. But that's basically how we're trying to change or rework some of our approaches. So now, go ahead, Diana. Well, I didn't have a lot to add to that. That was a great summary by Randy. Um, but I did want to say something that's been incre incredibly impressive to me. So since I've been at Global Health and I lead the new partnerships initiative for Global Health, I've worked closely with Randy, who's leading the overall effort. And I came to Global Health not quite certain how uh, indigenous groups and organizations and how it worked from, as some people call it, microwave approach from the inside out. But over the last couple of years, I've been, as I said, very impressed with how Global Health listens to the, the organizations, the faith, community-based uh, organizations, and small businesses that really are the machinery behind what works or doesn't work in their country and have made a great effort to uh, modify, to rework our efforts and uh, stronger support and partnership with these groups. And in this coordinated effort, we are seeing a lot of interest. We're seeing, beginning to see a lot greater impact. And I, I love to say that over the last two years, I've met with leadership across state sectors, representing tens if not hundreds of millions of, of people in Sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean. So I, I could boil it down to listening, focus, and a true interest and support from the administration all the way down for this modified, refocused, uh, and emphasized approach on self-reliance and sustainability. Well, you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners here, in fact, probably almost all of them, are working with faith-based initiatives, organizations that are, you know, missionary agencies or similar. But can you just give me an idea what sorts of projects you've had success with or you've seen success with when the partner is faith-based? Uh, yes, and I'll start on that one. Uh, I, I just kind of I'm going to open this up a little bit with uh, I was already saying how impressed I was with the agency's commitment to faith and community-based outreach and engagement, but um, that's been going on for a long time. In fact, USAID has a long, successful history of partnering with faith and community-based groups uh, since 1960. Um, our commitment actually goes all the way to the top. In 2000, May 2017, the president issued an executive order 
that states the White House wants state and community-based organizations to the fullest opportunity permitted by law to compete on a level playing field for grants, contracts, programs, and other federal funding opportunities. And Randy has already talked about Administrator Green's support and you know, stamp of approval and focus in, in the same area. It's in, this is important because we know that faith-based and community-based organizations have a tremendous impact. And you know, we, your, your listeners are well aware of that because that's what you do. So I'll give you a few examples of partnerships. One is a group probably well-known, a network probably well-known to a lot of your listeners, the Christian Connection for International Health. And they joined forces with the Ugandan Protestant Medical Bureau to uh, build global evidence showing that faith-based groups could effectively provide critical services for family planning, including healthy timing and spacing of, pre of pregnancies. Their combined efforts, these two groups, um, resulted in the creation of low literacy faith-based materials thereby increasing access for underserved groups. And they also trained church leadership and health facility staff for greater reach and sustainable results. Uh, I have three, and the second is uh, from Nigeria. The Faith United for Health Nigerian uh, group is a key partner of the Nigerian Interfaith Action Association and this is unique in that it's a Christian-Muslim-based partnership. It implemented a campaign in 2009 and 10 to train 300,000 religious leaders in the promotion and use of anti-malarial bed nets. An independent evaluation, as I was just saying earlier, Ted, uh, of this campaign reported that the incredibly successful bed net usage of it went from a baseline of 25% to 50%. Again, that, uh, that's a pretty amazing result. Sure. The last example is in the DRC, where USAID worked with private providers. These are primarily faith-based groups. And that was to fill the gap in the public health sector, resulting from the political and civil destabilization as we know, that's been going on for more than a decade. A key result of this partnership is that USAID's collaboration was the USAID's collaboration with Pansy Hospital. Uh, that's a faith-based hospital in South Kivu, uh, Eastern DRC, where the 2018 Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Dennis Luwege and his team perform more than 400 fistula surgeries each year. Encouraged by our support, the provincial government there is now mobilizing private domestic resources to help continue this work. So as you can see, the catalyst was us, but the end result they're taking ownership for and, and they're taking responsibility for. Wow, um, it's impressive. I, I'd be curious, I got one question that kind of, as you were talking, so in our, you know, in our network, we have obviously many American organizations, we just have Canadian organizations, and then there's many local on the ground, non-American partners. 
I, I assume you're able to partner with any of these. Is that correct? Yes. So we have, uh, over the past decade, USAID has tried to shift more funding toward local partners. And initially, the uh, emphasis was on partners that are defined as truly indigenous, that uh, are domiciled or, uh, you know, formally uh, registered in the host country, have, for example, more than 50% of a governing board uh, who are nationals of that country and so forth. And this was a real effort to uh, increase local ownership of development resources. But what we learned after about a decade of this is that approach to local partners may be too narrow. And so in the transformation process that I referred to earlier, we've actually now shifted and broadened the definition of local partners. We want to recognize that organizations that may be based in the U.S. or internationally but operate locally can be uh, valid partners for the local context and, in fact, can sometimes provide a buffer and a bridge for development resources to some of those local communities and provide, of course, technical assistance and uh, solidarity networks, things that really benefit the host communities long term. So we have learned from the experience of trying to strengthen local partners and realized that we need those U.S. or international organizations, often faith-based groups, that have long-term commitments and, like Diana said, have trust and staying power in those host countries. And so the new partnerships initiative is trying to shift the agency back in this direction, and that's why there may well be new opportunities and increased opportunities for um, groups that are doing development assistance as part of what might otherwise be a, um, uh, a mission or a faith-based endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll add here uh, that Randy has already mentioned the new partnerships initiative, which is a truly exciting, well-thought-out initiative. I'm, I'm very impressed by it. I know I work here, Ted, but I love this agency and the people in it. Um, but in July, uh, actually on July 12th, the Global Health launched our own part of the new partnerships initiative. And our first two opportunities focused on supporting community health workers and building capacity in local partnerships. And we've, we've just had incredible um, response and interest, very impressive collaborative efforts that, uh, as Randy said, we look forward to expanding as this partner, as this new initiative increases or, or grows. Well, very encouraging. But let's say someone is listening to this podcast and they're wondering about well, great. How do I find out, you know, if it's a possibility in my area? What, what, what's the steps that they might consider? So go to the USAID website. Just go to New Partnerships Initiative. There's a lot of information there about how to access, um, how to look up these opportunities, how to engage with missions or with USAID Washington. We are just at the beginning, so there will be more opportunities. The first two that we've launched relate to conflict and prevention of conflict and, uh, um, and global health. And we expect new awards uh, in the coming weeks to, uh, I'll just give you some examples. Uh, the mission in Iraq will be issuing new awards in Bangladesh and Indonesia. 
And through the global health mechanism, we expect uh, a variety of countries to be making new awards. And then we hope to follow this up with some learning from the process and then issuing additional uh, calls for proposals that will be posted uh, on the USDID website and easily discoverable under New Partnerships Initiative on the website. Yeah, great information under the New Partnerships website. Um, I've just been reviewing the questions and answers myself, and it, it's just so much easier to understand, Ted. We, this has been a while coming, but I, I want to emphasize how thorough and how well done and thought out this is and continues to be. And I'll just add this in closing to what Randy said. Um, USAID has more than 12,000 projects in Europe, Eurasia, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Um, and most of our work, this is important because I discovered a lot of potential partners don't know this, but most of our work, 75% uh, of our workforce is overseas, and two-thirds of our funding is in this field. So it's important to know that we set up here and think things through, and we help initiate and catalyze, but we are not the check writers. That's why I can't stress enough the importance to learn about missions in the countries where you are and go to their website and there will be a link on the new partnerships initiative site so that you can look at the missions websites, look at what their priorities are in their particular your particular country, and then think about matching your expertise, your experience, and your interests with theirs. Um, so that's, uh, I think that's the best guidance we could give you in terms of partnerships. Randy, do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. Well, we'll also post in the show notes uh, the link to the website and that kind of thing so people can look there if they want to see that. Our guests have been Dan Lightfoot and Randy Tiff with uh, USAID. We want to thank you so much for being on the call. This has been very informative. Thank you for this incredible opportunity. And we look forward to uh, continuing to work with you, Ted. Yep, and we'll uh, be glad to see some of those links uh, when this podcast gets posted, and um, we can uh, always clarify and uh, respond to uh, any of your membership that have specific questions. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. Well, sorry about some of the sound quality there. There's things you can't always influence when you record these things. A couple of announcements, then into the mailbag, and something I like. So, first of all, uh, registration for the Mission Leaders Conference is almost over. Get online right away if you want to get in. I think you're going to find it to be an awesome conference. We've been thinking about it. Now's the time for action. We're going to be announcing an exciting new member benefit at the Mission Leaders Conference an announcement went out this went out about this to um, organizational administrative contacts already, uh, but right now media is like the Netflix of Bible study materials, and it is now going to be included as a part of Missio Nexus benefits. So if your organization is a member, this is only for organizational members, by the way. Sorry about that, but that's got to be the way it is. Um, if your organization is a member of Missio Nexus, you can now extend to them right now media 
benefits. If you go to our webpage, our website, and search for Right Now Media, you'll find the page that talks about it. The announcement will actually happen at the Mission Leaders Conference. And at that point in time, you will be able to uh, get more information, etc. So be looking for that. We do have two um, CEO-ish kind of events coming up. The denominational roundtable will happen in Orlando. So if you're the leader of a denominational mission agency, this is a unique one-day networking event. Uh, We have a lot of open conferencing time there. And then also we're doing the peer-to-peer CEO event in San Francisco uh, this year. March 31st to April 2nd, we have an exciting speaker, a venture capitalist who likes to invest in faith-based initiatives. Uh, You're going to enjoy this event. I think it's going to be a good focus on innovation, uh, which we need to be talking about in our community. So those are the announcements. Well, today we want to ask the question, should missionaries work with government agencies? Now, obviously, I just interviewed USAID. And I do have a little bit of experience in this realm because when we worked in Bosnia, we did at times partner and work with uh, the U.S. forces that were on the ground, the U.S. Embassy, and in fact, USAID. And so let me just preface this by saying, you know, I might have some bias. There's others that have a different bias that would say never, ever do it. And my, my view on this one is it's highly contextualized to your local conditions. So where I worked in Bosnia, our focus was, of course, working with Bosnian Muslims. And the U.S. government, in fact, was a great friend to the U.S., I'm sorry, to the Bosnian Muslims there. And we didn't see it as a net negative. Now, if I worked there now, would I do it? I'm not so sure I would do that now. Uh, the situation has changed substantially, and it would make things a little bit more difficult. When you work with government agencies, you need to be aware that they will try to use you to advance their agenda. And so you need to always be asking yourself the question about how this relationship is helping or hurting the advance of the gospel. And um, I, I do think that, you know, espionage is an issue and they have used mission agencies. Uh, we've written articles on this at Missio Nexus. And uh, don't be... Um, naive enough to think that you're not going to be used for things that you really don't want to be used for. And so be really cautious about that as you work with them. They do have a lot of resources. They do have a lot of information. And the other thing I would just say about this is it really depends also on who you're working with on the ground where you're uh, ministering, what kind of posture, attitude they'll take to the faith-based community. Um, You might find that they're hostile. You might find that they're uh, believers and they're trying to help you achieve your objectives as they achieve theirs. So mixed bag, highly contextual. I don't think there's a absolute, um, you know, never do this, nor do I think it'd be good to say, yeah, you should check it out and try to make it happen uh, because it really will depend on your situation. I know, kind of a weenie answer, but it is the right answer, I think. Okay, something I like. This is maybe going to be another oddball device. Uh, You know, I'm a gadget guy. But um, I suffer quite a bit from tennis elbow, and now I have kind of a new similar carpal tunnel type syndrome in my hands from typing too much. I type a lot, and I have been looking for a way to keep my hands straight as they approach the keyboard, and I've come across this. It's called 
gold touch keyboard and what it allows you to do is it's kind of like a split keyboard if you remember those old Microsoft keyboards that were split this one not only splits but it stands up on end so your hands are actually in a very neutral position so if you're somebody who uh, has been typing a lot you want to try some unique keyboards perhaps um, uh, this is a great one the gold touch I think I paid $74 for it on Amazon and you can look it up and you can give it a shot you might find it way more comfortable than the standard flat keyboard um, by the way I, I'm a kind of a keyboard geek too I got a whole closet full of different keyboard types again I type a lot so for me it's kind of been a thing well that's it for the Missio Nexus podcast hope you have a blessed day wherever you are we'll try to stay safe as this tropical storm passes us by we'll be praying for those that are further downstream I hope it continues to go out to sea further and further and affects nobody. Have a blessed day.